I'm going to ask you this morning to please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 24 to 28. And I'm going to ask you to stand this morning for the reading of the word. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord, for his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, hide me behind your cross. Let the words I say be your heart articulated through my voice to your people. May the Holy Spirit transform us thoroughly through the promise of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It might seem strange to you for me to be preaching a sermon on Hannah now in this season between Ordinary Time and Advent. Sermons on Hannah are usually reserved for Mother's Day because it's a story of sacrificial love for a child and her desperate desire for one that turned into something amazing. Hannah was certainly a special mother. She prayed for the gift of her child and surrendered him to the Lord and that actually, that second part about surrendering is the key focus that we are going to turn to today. Because that surrendering of Samuel to God is the template for how one ought to raise their children, certainly. I have no argument with that. I believe wholeheartedly in the dedication of our children to God. I believe that surrendering them to him is an important and crucial step in ensuring their spiritual growth. I would focus this morning, however, on a slightly different aspect of this story. Not one that takes away from Hannah's parenting skills or the fact of her dedication of her son to God, but one that discusses how that can have a broader implication for us, even those of us who are not parents. Indeed, I would use the gift Hannah receives and gives as a picture of sanctification, of the path of grace that leads to holiness. It is my prayer this morning that the song we sang just a few moments ago, Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee, will mean more to you after this message, and that it will be a renewed prayer for all of us. We sort of started with the ending scripture here, where we find the conclusion of the story of Hannah's sacrifice. The full story of this gift begins at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And I'll summarize it a little bit for you now. Hannah has one thing she is desperate for in her life. 
And it is the one thing that she is centered on in the first chapter of Samuel. Being a mother is far more for her than just being pregnant or having a child. Hannah's barrenness left her not only lacking children, but feeling as though she was bereft of God's blessing. Most scholars believe that Hannah would have been the first wife of Elkanah. That's her husband's name, Elkanah. And that he had married Penina only after he found that Hannah was barren. Penina, she steps into her role as uh, able to bear children because she does bear children. She bears a lot of them with dignity and grace. No. She proceeds to harass and belittle Hannah. In fact, she gets under Hannah's skin so much that Hannah becomes desperate enough not to eat whenever they come to sacrifice at the temple every year. She's horrified at the status that she finds herself in. And she gets to a place where Penina's digging at her hurts a lot. Have you ever known someone who had something that you really wanted and they sort of made it obvious that they knew that you really wanted this thing that they had? And so they sort of threw it in your face. Maybe uh, I can remember when I was like, I don't know, I was 12, I think. There was the Cabbage Patch Kid craze going on at Christmas time. And I was 12, so I wasn't really of an age where I should have wanted a Cabbage Patch Kid, but everybody wanted a Cabbage Patch Kid. And I had two sisters and a brother, but I had two sisters who were younger than me. One was 10 and one was eight. They were of the much more appropriate ages for Cabbage Patch Kids. So Christmas came and by some crazy circumstance, someone actually got them Cabbage Patch Kids. I did not get a Cabbage Patch Kid. I got a journal. This was not the same thing. My sisters, Lord love them, were gracious enough to be like, look, Jennifer, at our really cool Cabbage Patch Kids, blah, blah, blah. So being the lovely big sister that I was, I proceeded to throw one of their Cabbage Patch Kids on the roof. And um, I believe I cut the other one's hair. But... Um, yeah, I maybe wasn't so great as Hannah was because Hannah had this sort of experience where she was getting nitpicked and harassed and treated poorly. And she went and prayed, which probably in hindsight I could have done more of at 12. But in any case, she went and she prayed. And she is praying 
so desperately that as she is standing outside the tabernacle doors, praying for this child, vowing to dedicate him to God, Eli, who's the high priest, comes out and he's like, what is going on? And he sort of looks at her and he goes, um, Hannah, you should not be drinking wine to this degree. Uh, you seem drunk to me. And Hannah's like, no, I'm not drunk. I'm heartbroken. I'm desperate, and I'm heartbroken. And Eli says, may the Lord of Israel grant you what you have asked. And Hannah walks away feeling better. She goes back with her family. She participates with them in the rest of the worship in Jerusalem. She heads back to her home. And when she gets there, she eventually finds herself pregnant. Now at this point, you might think, well, great, she's going to have a baby. Hannah knows that when her son is born, when her baby is born, at that point she doesn't necessarily know it's a son, um, they didn't have ultrasounds when Hannah was pregnant. Just going to say that. So Hannah's pregnant. She has this baby. Eventually, she actually has the baby, and when she has the baby, she's nursing the baby. And the first year, maybe two, she doesn't go back to the worship because she's still nursing. But as soon as her son is weaned, she follows through on her promise. Now, at this point, Hannah doesn't know if she's ever going to have another child. Hannah only knows that she's been given this one. She takes him to the tabernacle, and with the appropriate sacrifices, she leaves him behind. I want to just back up for half a second here and just say that God has no obligation to make a deal with us. In other words, you can't say to God on a regular basis, I'm going to do this and somehow tie God to a response to that. You know how in the movies sometimes people will be in a desperate situation and they'll say, God, if you let my sister live, I will be a good person for the rest of my life. God is under no obligation to react to that vow. That doesn't work that way. God is not a cheap carnival act where we pay a penny and we see him dance. God is God. And God does what makes sense to God. But the story of Hannah highlights several things. Barrenness 
is used often in scripture as a picture of the gap between where God wants us to be and where we are. Barrenness is symbolic of how our relationship with God has suffered under sin and how it is that the redemption God offers changes that for us. We see it in Genesis with Abraham's wife and Sarah. Sarah was barren until she was 90. I can't imagine having a baby at 90. I can't imagine having a baby at 46. But I really can't imagine having a baby at 90. And I'm just going to say that if I did find myself in a circumstance where I was suddenly pregnant at 90, I would be spending a lot of time in prayer. But it's her barrenness that shows how hard it is to be separated from God. It drives home how big the gap is. And so then her sudden fertility turns into an entire nation of God followers. We see it in Luke with Elizabeth, who was barren for many years. Her husband was a priest. And her son became the prophet who declared that Jesus was coming, John the Baptist. Psalmists and prophets use the picture of barrenness for this purpose too, and so it is with Hannah's barrenness. It was not for her alone. I'm sure it felt that way while she was going through it. But her barrenness was designed from the beginning to fulfill a purpose God had in mind, which was to produce a prophet that would lead Israel into the era of kings. You see, her son Samuel was not just a son. He was to become a prophet. He would anoint Saul as king of Israel. He would anoint David as king of Israel. And he would be used by God to demonstrate to the people of Israel that really the king they should have wanted was never going to be the king they got. Because the king they should have wanted was God. But the king in human form that they kept getting was not maybe so great. But Israel was in a place where they really needed someone to be in leadership. And Samuel filled that role for a while. Judges 21-25, which is the close of the period of Judges in Israel's history, it says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, there was anarchy. It was a free-for-all. It's the last descriptor of history in Israel before 1 Samuel, and it is the picture that Hannah lives in. In fact, we'll find out later that Eli's own sons were part of the problem. They were stealing from people and taking from God. 
and they were bullies. So Samuel is born. And Samuel is given over to the priest, and he is to be raised as dedicated to God. Hannah is representative of a nation that needed something desperately. A king, but not the one or the type that the nation imagined that it needed. Hannah's story is a picture of what it looks like to raise a personal desire to the level that it disturbs everything about us. And it is the story of how God can transform that desire into an obedient and surrendered heart. God gave Hannah what she wanted most. In his time, he bestowed on her the one thing she desired more than anything else. And then, because she had promised him she would, Hannah surrendered that gift back to God. This is the twofold point of the title of the sermon, Hannah's Gift. Hannah's gift is the gift that God gave to her. And it is also Hannah's return of that gift to God. I read a devotional that spoke about preaching. And it said, preach so that the hearer might sit back and say, what should we do? Much like the hearers at Pentecost responded to Peter in Acts. So at the end of this message, I want to be very clear on what you should do, what I should do, what any believer who is committed to being obedient to Christ should do. I am praying this morning that the Holy Spirit is working among us, that we are sensing his presence here this morning, and that we could understand what we desire most. What is the thing that we want most. That's the thing that Hannah received, and it's what Israel ultimately received in the same book, and it is ultimately what can either be our downfall or our salvation. It all depends on what we do with what we have desired. Think about what you desire. Is it money? Is it prestige? Is it being right? Or being healthy? Or being loved? Or being safe? None of those things are wrong desires in and of themselves. Just as Hannah's desire for a child was not a bad desire, our desire to have some measure of security or wealth or love or companionship or even respect are not bad desires in and of themselves. However, what we do with them when we are granted them is a big deal. So then, here is the two-step what you should do portion of the sermon. Number one, figure it out. What is it that you actually desire? And then number two, surrender it to God. 
This is how we tie Hannah back to the grace of sanctification. Because if we recognize that surrendering our desires, whether we have received them or not, is the grace of sanctification, then Hannah has much to say to us on the subject. Because she handed over her son not knowing if God would ever bless her that way again. She desired it so much that when she prayed about it, her desperation was evident to those around her. And when it was granted to her, she gave it away. She surrendered the deepest desire she had to God. And she followed through. She gave it right back to him. When we surrender who we think we need to be to who God actually is, that is what we call sanctification. Giving God everything that he has given us in the first place. Giving it back to him. That level of surrender changes everything about you and about how you live and breathe and move. In 1 Samuel 1.18, after Hannah has prayed and Eli has blessed her, Hannah's demeanor changed. But this is before she has been granted her desire. Why did her demeanor change? Because she had surrendered her desire to the only one who could make it a reality. Romans 12, 1-2 speaks to this very concept of surrendering ourselves to God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. These verses suggest that surrendering our very selves, our deepest, most thorough desires to God, are the way to worship. This is what God has not only asked of us, but he provides us the very gifts he asks us to return to him. As we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, God takes our surrendered desires and recasts them according to his will. Hannah's story this morning concludes with her giving her son to God and worshiping with her husband after doing so. She could not know what Samuel's future was. She did not know that her son would anoint two kings or that her story would demonstrate such a magnificent thing as God's salvation and sanctification. All she knew was that she had made a promise that God had given her what she desired most and that she could do no other than give that back. Sanctification as a concept is the idea that sets something aside for special use, particularly some holy use. Hannah set Samuel aside in that way 
surrendering him to God for his purposes. We too can set aside our wills and our desires, pronouncing them specially available for God's purposes. I close this morning with the story of Jim Elliott. He had a Scottish heritage, although he is from Portland, Oregon. You may not have ever heard of him. He went to Wheaton College, and he became a missionary to Ecuador. He was determined to preach the gospel to a tribe that was known to be decidedly ruthless. People who visited there often did so to their peril. He set up a camp, and he began to work. He started preaching and teaching and talking to them. And it wasn't very long before the tribesmen savagely killed him and four companions. The death of the missionaries did not dissuade others who were part of their larger party, including Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife. They continued their work with other missionaries to testify and witness to the tribes, to these people. And what makes Jim's story interesting is not so much that he was martyred, although that certainly made headlines at the time, but a journal note that he wrote many years earlier. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This statement pertains not only to the giving of Jim's life in pursuit of sharing the gospel, but to Hannah's surrender of her child and to our surrender of whatever desire we cherish. This morning I leave you with this idea. If you have some desire that you need to surrender, I pray that you will do so. God wants to use your desire for his purpose. God's will is for your desires to be surrendered to his. God's will is for your yes to him to be complete and total. And if you heard this sermon and thought of some desire that you need to surrender, some part of yourself that needs to be given over to God to be set aside for his use, then I would assert the best response you can give would be to participate at this table this morning, to receive fully the gifts of grace offered as part of the communion supper, and to use that as a catalyst for surrendering your desires back to him. Pray that God would turn your desires to his as you participate this morning. Pray that God would show you how to surrender that desire to him.